a radio show that confesses Christ without confusing the law and the gospel. A radio show that takes Scripture seriously without taking ourselves so seriously. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Jesus does not lie. And he told me, you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He told me, this is my blood shed for you. He told me, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. And I've heard the Lord's voice in the absolution, forgiven me. He's, he's told me that he, uh, that he loves the world, that he died for the world, that he shed his blood to save me and forgive me. He said it, and he doesn't lie. Those sins, which we're supposed to be conquering, have been conquered, not by our striving to overcome them, but have they been conquered by the death of Jesus. Those sins, even those pet sins that we're supposed to overcome, even the, the sins that we keep coming back to, those have been crucified with Christ. Uh, and now uh, sanctification is, is putting to death the old, the old Adam, the old flesh, by confessing our sins. I wasn't paying attention to what you just said. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Sorry, I was reading Facebook statuses. Excellence in boredom. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. <laughs> Take it easy. You say the word excellence, even if it's qualified, and it scares me. <laughs> excellence. Oh yeah, I guess that's okay. Uh, well, so <laughs> take it easy. <laughs> so we have a we have a new thing we're going to be trying out here. Is that right? Today on Table Talk Radio. Uh, yes. Oh yeah, we got a couple of new. Well, we're going to do. Yeah, two new things. Translating Roman Catholicism. We're going to listen to the funeral, a couple excerpts from the funeral sermon of uh, for Justice Anton Scalia. And we're going to translate those words. Uh, we're going to fill out the whole Roman Catholic doctrine behind them. And then we're going to have Warren Graff on to play Ten Commandments in the News. Now, this is an experiment. We might try this a few weeks in a row. That's right. If it works out, goes. We, we might get rid of Pastor Wolfmuller. That's right. Always trying out for new co-hosts. But before that, I have a uh, a situationally um, appropriate buzzword for you, and it is this word. Ready? Indulgence. <laughs> okay. Now, the word indulgence means uh, to, for example, eat too much chocolate or to flavor your bathtub water with any sort of flavoring. Both of those count as <laughs> indulging. I, boy, I can't tell you how many plain times water I've is not an indulgence. <laughs> can't tell you how many times I flavored the bath water. You should walk upstairs and I'm like, what is that smell? <laughs> There's Carrie with the cauldron, you know, <laughs> toilet trouble, boiling bubble. This is like vanilla, lavender, kumquat, kiwi sort of. What? What is with that? So, uh, Mandy had this little I, thing I don't that. Know. that I don't know. I, I call it the fumigator, but it like it puts out like the steam. It's like scented oil steam stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I've I yeah. We've got one of those things around there too. Oh man, some sort of Star Trek vaporizer. Holy cow! That that makes me just pass out. I just ugh. ugh. I that, I, that's I like, said that's honey, what like... is this witchcraft? <laughs> <laughs> and it's all it's all these essential oils laying around. I'm like, this is just like you know. It's like the Middle Ages. And so expect... Isaac says the other day, Mom, are you using witchcraft again? And I said, I better stop calling it that. Out of the mouth of babes. Uh, I mean, I'm, ex I'm expecting this tarp to be around the house when I get home. I mean, it's just, goodness gracious. Ugh. 
I don't know what's going on. Indulgence is also a Roman Catholic doctrine. I'll read you from the from I'm from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 1471, indulgences. The doctrine and practice of indulgences in the church are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance. What is an indulgence? Quote, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which as the minister of redemption... dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfaction of Christ and the saints. Indulgence, by the way, is what started the Reformation. You remember the indulgences? Soul in the coffer uh, rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And the indulgence theology gets into the entire doctrine of the Catholic Church, which has to do with merit, uh, both grace and forgiveness, but then satisfaction and penance and the whole deal, which I'm just going to guess we're going to talk about in a few minutes. <laughs> uh, what, you're a prophet now? You can see into the future? <laughs> <laughs> just guessing. It might turn out to be totally not true. Okay. My... But if so, that's a gimme buzzword for you. Thank you. My theological buzzword for you is materialism. And um, I... I found a new source that I like for theological buzzwords. This is uh, the CARM website, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. I have heard of those guys, yeah. Materialism is the position that only material things exist and that all other things can be explained in terms of matter and the physical properties of matter. Uh, It would deny the existence of anything immaterial, such as the mind. Hmm. Uh, There's no real difference between materialism and physicalism, since both pose that the universe is all that there is, and that everything in it um, are dependent upon the physical realm. So materialism is your theological buzzword. I think it's helpful to dis- dis- make a distinction between capital M materialism and lowercase m materialism. Because normally okay. when we say materialistic, right. like, that just means you really like stuff, right? But when we say materialism theologically or philosophically, it's a more... It's an actual doctrine, and that is, as you def- defined it, the only things that can be measured exist. Now, here, here's a, a great irony. I was trying to coax the Flammy into writing an article today because he came into my office and was reading Duns Scotus to me, um, and he and then left and said, that was great. We should do that at lunchtime every day, read old scholastic philosophers, which it confirms that we definitely have different definitions of fun. But, uh, <laughs> but one of... One of the ironies that we were talking about is that Dun Scotus brought up this idea that old, the old Greek philosophers were always looking for that for the atom, the atom, the thing that's uncuttable, the kind of basic uh, root cause of the, this material world. And some said it was water, and un, some others said it was fire, and others said it was ether. Uh, the um, uh, who's the eat, drink, and be merry that I'm always talking about? Epicurus. The, uh, the Epicurus said that it was it was the atom. In fact, he might have invented that word, the uncuttable thing, just some little piece of matter. And um, and this is exactly the thing that scientists are doing today. They're looking for this unified string theory. In other words, what is the basic, most uncuttable building block of of nature? It's Plato that moved beyond that. And so I was trying to coax Flammy into writing something that would be like the the um the pagan origin of looking for the str- of searching for string theory so look for that riveting article to be rolling out soon well you've got me on the edge of my seat right now 
materialism. That's materialistic thing that everything can be reduced down to some sort of great simplicity. We don't. We do not necessarily assume that in our Christian cosmology. Right. Okay. All right. So if you would like to put in your application, be a co-host on this show, the phone number is eight. <laughs> 1-800-385-SOLA, 1-800-385-7655. Hey, I think reading Duns Scotus just makes me a better theologian. <laughs> uh, not, not necessarily <laughs> more boring radio host. If, if you possess the ability to memorize seven sequential numbers, <laughs> then I guess they're not sequential numbers, but seven numbers, then just, you know, give me a, a call. A sequence of seven numbers? There you go. A non-sequential sequence of seven numbers? <laughs> All right, now, uh, what we're, so this is a spinoff, I think, of the game that we used to play called um, Translating Evangelicalisms. Um, yeah, that was too good to, <laughs> for our show, so I've, I've moved it over to Issues Etc. where it's wildly popular. I guess that's true. The <laughs> amazing... just realized that. Is that what it's called? Uh, no, you, you, you... What's that called? Clichés. Responding what's, what's, to evangelical clichés. What's the difference between a cliché and an ism? Not that much, really. Just okay. had to come up with a different name so it wouldn't be so obvious what I was doing. So to reduce the popularity of your other uh, gig over there on Issues Etc., we have introduced this new game, uh, Translating Roman Catholicisms. And uh, that's what we're going to try out today. And the content of our our well, our subject matter here is the uh, funeral for um, Anthony Scalia, right? Yes, indeed. So you don't... You don't want to set this up anymore? No. No, no. Uh, so, Oh, so uh, Anton Scalia, uh, Supreme Court Justice, he died. Tragedy, really, in a number of different ways. Uh, but the result was he had a funeral. One of his sons is a priest, and he gave the homily, which I don't know how. We were talking about this before, how, I mean, I could never, I, could, I don't know if I could, you know, do the sermon for your father. But this sermon has been praised in any number of ways, and there are certainly praiseworthy things about it. Uh, but um, that that is certainly not unqualified praise because the, the, it is a Catholic funeral sermon, and therefore has Catholic doctrine. I think one of the, our problems is that we forget. You know, we're so busy getting after the evangelicals, which we should. That we forget that we, we the the battle for right doctrine and for the gospel itself rages on both sides, and the Catholics have not gotten better with their doctrine in the past. 500 years. In fact, they might have gotten worse. So we're going to listen to the sermon and and try to tease out the Catholic stuff that might have been missed by your average uh, listener. Yeah, no, no, not here, though. Not on Table Talk Radio. We will nail it for you. Um, we're going to push this off until after the break. But I, oh, I think okay. part of it, too, is... Um, <sighs> Even even in a, a Roman Catholic setting, oftentimes finding a priest that uh, preaches things that are in accordance with, uh, let me put it this way, that are theological, is sometimes a rare find. <laughs> that sometimes there's no more substance in the Roman Catholic sermon or homily than in the evangelical. And so just to hear a priest here say things that are theological, albeit wrong, um, is something that you don't always find. So, we'll talk about what is lacking or what is um, 
problematic in the funeral for Justice Scalia right after this break. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. Don't go away. Your abdomen when in Rome do like a Roman. Ave Maria. Gee, it's good to see you. Getting ecstatic and sort of dramatic and doing the Vatican right. Table Talk Radio. We love our on-demand listener. I save all the good stuff for grappling with the text, a little video Bible study that you could find at worldvieweverlasting.com. I'm so Catholic, praising my heavenly host with danger choirs. Sing the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Be our Catholic. Welcome back to Table Talk Radio. We are playing the game translating Roman Catholicisms, and the subject is Justice Scalia's uh, funeral sermon, and this is preached by his son, as you said before the break. And uh, it's amazing how well composed he is. But this is the beginning, how he started off his funeral homily for his dad, Anthony Scalia. In particular, I thank Cardinal Worrell, first, for reaching out so quickly and so graciously to console our mother. It was a consolation to her and therefore to us as well. Thank you also for allowing us to have this parish funeral mass here in this basilica dedicated to Our Lady. What a great privilege and consolation that we were able to bring our Father through the holy doors and for him gain the indulgence promised to those who enter in faith. <laughs> now, we got to stop there. That is awesome. So do you know, I, I've, I've done a little bit of work to figure out what this is, uh, what this is and it is Pope Francis has um, offered an indulgence, because this is a year of jubilee, um, for those who would pass through uh, what are called holy doors, um, and there's probably about 200 sites or maybe more, 500 sites in the United States where there's basilicas, uh, churches, cathedrals, where if you go through the doors, you're granted an indulgence. Now, this should give us an indication that whatever's happened in, the, in this funeral sermon is uh, as Roman Catholic as you can get. I mean, as soon as you start to talk about indulgences through go, by going through holy doors, uh, you you are in the realm of Catholicism, and you've departed the realm of evangelical Christianity. <laughs> uh, not to get off topic, but did you see recently how the Pope had also um, encouraged the priests not to... Um, oh, Anyway, he spoke against uh, executions and, and the death penalty. And yet, this Pope, man, he's like... You know, he's like leaning over to the left of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> is that possible? <laughs> this is, I mean, just radical, radical liberalism. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. So, I mean, so, so here, um, I mean, we could just kind of replay all the arguments from the time of the Reformation, but um, so here, here, a pope offers an indulgence if you just go through the doors, and people remark, "Oh, how." wonderful this pope is he's offering these indulgences and it makes you wonder well if he can just do that why not offer it to me right here in my house or wherever i'm sitting i mean why why attach the string of going through the doors <laughs> well because the uh, so here i'll uh here's the announcement from catholic pilgrimage sites uh dot com pope francis has announced an opportunity for catholics to obtain plenary indulgence during the year of mercy by passing through a designated holy door during the year of mercy 
slightly repetitive, or performing one of the corporal or spiritual works of mercy and fulfilling the usual conditions of having the interior disposition of complete detachment from sin. That's no big deal. (laughs) Receiving sacramental confession in the Holy Eucharist and praying for the intentions of the Holy Father. Wow. So, um, let's see. Uh, The the, the Holy Doors are here. Now, the reason is because the Catholic Church has... I mean, really, if you want to... I think the best way to picture the Catholic system of salvation is to picture a bank. What it's what's called the bank is in heaven, the treasury of merit, so that every good work um, kind of scrapes together some merit, and uh, and that the treasury of merit is filled up with the merits mostly of Jesus, and then next the next highest depositor in the treasury of merit is Mary, and then all the other saints. That is all the people who have done uh, enough good works that they don't need any merit for their themselves, and each person has a little bank account in their own soul. So every time you sin, you there's a withdrawal made of your own merit and you have to you have to uh be in the build black. that up. Yeah, well you're in the red and then you got to get into the black, you got to build that up by a particular good work. Now, uh that is what's called penance. So you so the penance is the making up of the effect of your particular sin, kind of building back up to that place where you're not in in debt. Now, this is pretty important because it, it, um the 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 understanding of the catholic church is that the pope was given by jesus the key to the treasury of merit so when jesus says i give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven the the key that he was given was the key to this treasury of good work so that the pope has the office now of dispensing the uh, the treasury of merit uh on earth and so the church is understood as the dispensary of that merit and um, and while this is simplistic and you could get more complicated, I think this is really the right way to understand it. Now, there's two types of indulgences. I'll read again from the Catholic Church uh, Catechism. An indulgence is partial or plenary according uh, as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. Indulgences may be applied to the living or to the dead. So you can have a partial indulgence or a plenary indulgence. Now, plenary indulgences were ve- are very, very rare. A partial indulgence takes away part of the temporary punishment for sin. And the Pope can determine how those things are distributed by paying money or, you know, a couple years ago you could get one if you stopped smoking uh, or this is a really a kind of a pilgrimage indulgence. So you go on the pilgrimage and uh, the, the temporary effect of your sin is remitted. Now, notice what the, the sermon here said, that by bringing Antonin Scalia through the doors, even bringing his body through the doors, that he received an indulgence. Do you see that? So that even after you're dead, you can receive the indulgence. Now, why would the dead need an indulgence? Well, this is the whole doctrine of purgatory. So maybe one step back and to say that most people, when they die, do not have a full bank account. Now, if you're in the negative, you go to hell. If you if you have a full bank account of merit, you go to heaven. But most people will die in the Catholic idea somewhere in the middle. Like you're not in debt, but neither are you full. You've got you you, you have not been perfected. The love of Christ is not perfected in you. That would be the way of saying that. And that's why you have to go to purgatory to, to, pur- to, to suffer all of the effects of your sin until it's purged from you and, and you reach a state of perfection, and then you get to go in, into heaven. Now, so that the, the doctrine was that Scalia, Antonin Scalia, was in purgatory suffering for the effects of his sin, and that by bringing his body through the church door, he received some time off in purgatory. I think you said that was a plenary indulgence, though, didn't you, when you read what you just read a little bit ago? Mm. No. Oh, a plenary indulgence? Um, uh, I think it was. I think I heard that word. 
Um, but I'm going to, I mean, I hate to point out the obvious, but wouldn't that mean Jesus died for nothing? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, no. So, so, I mean, not for nothing. The Catholic would say, well, Jesus died. This is what it is. Jesus died to provide us access to the Father's grace so that Jesus is the one who opens the door. He gives the possibility of salvation. He's the one that assists along the way of salvation. So Jesus is the great salvation assistant in every way. He begins the idea of salvation. He ends the process of salvation. He's helping you along the process of salvation. He's giving you grace so that you can do meritorious good works and all of these sorts of things. Yeah, like when the but, angels say, glory be to God on high for the Savior assistant has arrived. <laughs> right, that's right. And this has been the Lutheran critique all along, and it's seen in the doctrine of indulgences, is that Jesus is not the, the assistant of salvation. He is the Savior. He is the one who does it. So that when Luther wants to go criticize Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine, he says, Jesus is the Savior. <laughs> and that is the thing that critiques uh, this whole system of Catholicism. We'll hear more about it, I think. Okay, well, here's another clip from the funeral sermon. God bless Dad with a deep Catholic faith. The conviction that Christ's presence and power continue in the world today through his body, the church. He loved the clarity and coherence of the church's teachings. He treasured the church's ceremonies, especially the beauty of her ancient worship. He trusted the power of her sacraments as the means of salvation, as Christ working within him for his salvation. Hmm. Notice anything <laughs> uh, to translate in that one? Well, here's the thing that is completely missing, and I, I believe I should—I better I can find the— um, the transcript of the funeral sermon, because I do not think there's one mission, one mention of the forgiveness of sins. And how about that for the thing to be kind of desperately absent from a funeral sermon? Because now it's talking about how it is, how it was with Jesus. And Jesus was the one who, how did it say it? He's the one working in you um, to bring about salvation, mm -hmm. the power of Christ in you so that Jesus now dwells in us and gives us the strength to do meritorious good works so that the Catholic Church cannot speak of salvation apart from works. They cannot speak of salvation apart from merit. They, they cannot stand the alones of the Reformation, grace alone, but especially faith alone, uh, and, and the doctrine that St. Paul teaches us, and really the, all of the prophets and apostles teach us, that it's by God's mercy alone and his kindness alone that we achieve heaven. It's not that salvation is something worked in us. It's a gift that's given to us. That's why Paul will talk about the gift of forgiveness, the gift of grace, the gift of God's mercy, the gift of justification. It's not something that's worked in us, but something that the Lord uh, delights to give to us. And that's completely missing in here. And this is very important. I mean, this is the doctrine. The doctrine that we're hearing preached in this funeral sermon is the false doctrine that sparked the Reformation. It, it, and nothing less than that. I mean, this is all it would take to cause an outrage in the church. Now, we're, we're so kind of blinded to it because we look around and we see the problems of the church. You know, we see the, the anti-sacramentalism of the evangelicals. We see the kind of goofy, childlike worship of the praise band. We see, um, we see the abandonment of history. We see all these things happening on this side. And then we see a funeral sermon like this, and we say, look, he's talking about the sacraments. He actually mentioned Jesus in the sermon, which is a rare thing. And we start to see all of these things that are so rare to us that we miss the fact that the doctrine that's underneath all of this 
is a doctrine that steals away comfort and introduces a, what the Lutherans called the monster of uncertainty that destroys faith. So we're kind of we're kind of mystified by it, you know, the incense of the thing kind of makes us lightheaded and we lose our capacity to bring some discernment to what we're hearing. Indeed, we need to take a break right there. One, one more clip for you after this. By the way, fact check that on the on the uh, transcript. It is true. The word forgiveness does not appear in the entire sermon. We'll be right back. You're listening to Table Stack Radio. Because some people have a high pain tolerance. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. The daily Bible meditation blog is at rightlydividedbible.wordpress.com, where three chapters of the Bible are considered each day. Check it out. Amen. Back on Table Talk Radio, playing the game, translating Roman Catholicisms. We've heard a couple yes. quotes from the Justice Scalia funeral from his son, uh, what, Father Scalia, I guess, is his name. <laughs> and uh, we're going to hear one more. So, uh, Pastor, are you ready to help me with a translation of this last one? Am I ever. All right, here it is. Today we pray for him. We pray for the repose of his soul. We thank God for his goodness to Dad, as is right and just. But we also know that although Dad believed, he did so imperfectly, like the rest of us. He tried to love God and neighbor, but like the rest of us, did so imperfectly. He was a practicing Catholic, practicing in the sense that he hadn't perfected it yet. Ha, 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 ha. Or rather, Christ really was not yet perfected normal. in him. Ooh, ooh, that's, I shouldn't have talked and over that. And only those in whom Christ is... Uh, Christ, go back, go back. Today, Christ he, is he not tried to yet perfected in him. Perfected it yet. Or rather, Christ was not yet perfected in him. Whew. And only those in whom Christ is brought to perfection can enter heaven. We are here then to lend our prayers to that perfecting, to that final work of God's grace in freeing dad from every encumbrance of sin. You know, I mean, this I just, is so Catholic. I just oh, want to, it's like dripping. I want to stand up and say, he's already freed me. <laughs> Poor Catholics. Oh, man. Get the whole gospel, become Lutheran. <laughs> Did you hear this? I think the worst word in this whole thing, I mean, there's a lot of terrible kind of words, but it, the way it starts, he says, although he believed. Yeah. Right. And, that's, and, and you hear what that's saying is his faith is not enough. You need something more than faith. His believing wasn't perfect. Now, the only way that faith becomes imperfect is that you have this idea that faith is a virtue, that it can be either perfect or corrupted, and that that virtue of faith is is then allowing you to receive the Lord's grace, which 
allows then meritorious good works to be formed and Christ to be perfectly formed in you. So this idea that that he would, Christ, Christ was not yet perfected in him, and only the perfect are allowed into heaven. That's the doctrine that we were talking about earlier, that you, your bank account has to be overflowing with merit for you to get into heaven. In fact, most people, that, that means to be a saint. That's in, in the Catholic Church, that's the definition of a saint, is a, perf- is a person who has been perfected, who's done enough good works, apparently, to, be, to not need any more. And, and the, the old Catholics used to talk about how the extra good works that the perfect do go into the treasury of merit to be distributed by the Pope to indulgences. I mean, the whole system is a denial of the sufficiency of Christ. It's a denial of the atonement. It's a denial of justification by grace through faith. It's a denial of the gospel itself, that Jesus forgives sins completely, and that we attain heaven not by our works, either inspired by God's grace or worked by Christ in us or whatever, but completely by the promise of the gospel. God gives salvation by the gospel. And so that the, the apostles are so careful to say that we're justified apart from works, that we're declared to be holy apart from our efforts, that, that, that perfection comes apart from the law. And heaven is attained, salvation is attained, not by uh, the Christ being somehow completed in us by our cooperation with God's grace, but rather we attain heaven because God gives it to us as a free gift. I mean, this sermon was not a sermon of the gospel, and it was not a sermon of comfort. Do, do you think that it receives such praise simply because um, we are so used to the funeral sermon um, having um, the person as the object of the verbs that we were delighted to hear a funeral sermon where God was the uh, subject of the verbs? We just ignored what those verbs were. But you, but actually, you know, who was the subject of this? Uh, of this was, in fact, in the end, the person who was listening, who was being enlisted to pray mm. for the for the work of Jesus in purgatory for Justice Scalia. We are here today so that we might lend our prayers to the assistance of Jesus in the final work of perfecting dad for uh, to be fit for heaven. Do you I'm, see? I'm telling so, you that this this whole uh funeral is is uh null and void on a technicality because he already received the plenary indulgence by going through the doors. He's good. <laughs> Yeah, you're right about the plenary indulgence. I I got to try to figure that out because maybe you just can't be quite sure if it, if he went through the doors with enough faith to earn the plenary indulgence. Oh, that's right. He did attach the condition of faith upon the going through the doors. That's right. Ah, and so you can never be sure, and that is the key to ca- understanding Catholic doctrine. You can never be sure. If you, that's, in fact, that's admired. Doctor, Trent, right? right, right. Trent says. Uh, it has a, a, a bunch of condemnations of the vain pride of the heretics, that means the Lutherans, who, who were sure that they were going to heaven. That was understood as arrogant and ungodly. In fact, that, the confidence that St. Paul says that every Christian should have, that God is our Father and heaven is our home, is condemned by the Council of Trent. Yee. Only Fort Wayne grads would analyze a funeral sermon. <laughs> I mean, again, there was a lot of good things about it, but, you, you know, it's it's really quite something that the same doctrine which sparked the Reformation now sparks all sorts of praise and jubilation by the Lutherans on Facebook. Indeed. There's some irony in that. Indeed. All right. One of the regular games we play here on Table Talk Radio is Ten Commandments in the News, but now we are pulling in the experts. Pastor Wolfner That's is right. not really doing it for us anymore. 
And That's so we right. we have called in an expert. No more guest. child's play. <laughs> That's right. So we have on the line Pastor Warren Graff. Uh, Pastor Graff, welcome back to Table Talk Radio. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. Now, an article that I came across here from NPR says, uh, fact check, Bernie Sanders promises free college. Will it work? Uh, what's your uh, reaction to this article? And, and talk about this in light of the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Um, well, I think when we hear that, none of us would be against free college. We all love college, and, and we all love free. And to think that we would give a priority to college by making it free, um, we, we'd all be in favor of that. But, but then we, we, we do want to think about it a little bit, and um, when you look at Bernie Sanders' argument, it is that w- when we need the, as he says, the best educated workforce in the world, um, we are going to make public colleges and universities tuition-free. Now, we know that there's more behind that, because it can't be tuition-free unless you're actually going to get the uh, professors to give free lectures. and, and Yeah, vol- the- volunteer faculty. Yeah, we'll have volunteer faculty, volunteers building the buildings, uh, free, free land is given. So there's nothing free about it. It's a matter of who is he going to make uh, pay for it. And that would be, of course, you know, he, he introduces himself as a socialist, so it's going to be the collective that, that pays for it. But l- let me give you a statement that he said um, in part of his argument uh, in a different news story that happens to be in U.S. News and World Report. Uh, Bernie Sanders said, in Finland, Denmark, Ireland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, and Mexico, public colleges and universities remain tuition-free. They're free throughout Germany, too. Governments in these countries understand what an important investment they are making, not just in the individuals who are able to acquire knowledge and skills, but for the societies these students will serve as teachers, architects, scientists, entrepreneurs, and more. And then that's the end of his quote. And I think it would be, you know, worthwhile for us to think, what is he actually putting forward here then? Because we're saying then that college should be free to everyone because of all these things that we need, he said, you know, the, where he says teachers, architects, scientists. And right away we can say, but what did he leave out? And what he didn't say is that the, the society needs students who will serve as, say, carpenters or roofers, painters. What, what else? Welders cooks, janitors, um, mechanics. None of that is in any of his language about free college. So there is already, in, in some way, a cheapening or disparaging of this doctrine of vocation that would have a saying that the man who is serving honorably by being a, a cook at a, um, at a restaurant is... Just as an honorable vocation as the man who is able to go and get a doctorate um, in uh, neuroscience or something, or the woman who's able to get uh, a doctorate in what, what are the other things he mentions, architecture. Now, those are all good things, but the doctrine of vocation would let us rejoice in the gifts given to each of us and to the person uh, not not wanting to go to college, not able to go to college, maybe for reasons of aptitude. Um, to, to those people, we do not ever want to dishonor what they're doing with their hands and their minds to serve their neighbor. 
All right, we need to take a break right there, and then we'll be talking more with Pastor Graf about the the story about Bernie Sanders in light of the Ten Commandments. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. If you want to give us a call about anything you have heard during this broadcast, you can give us a call, 1-800-385-SOLA. 1-800-385-7652 is the number, or you can send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. You can also probably check us out on Facebook, but nobody really looks at that. Uh, we'll be right back. You're listening to Table Talk Radio. He's making a change. He's making things right. He's going to tell you what's naughty and nice. Socialism's coming to town. He knows that you've been sleeping, and now that you're awake, he will tell you what to keep and how much that he'll take. Oh, you better watch out, you better get by, you're gonna have fun, I'm telling you why. Socialism's coming to town. Socialism's coming to town. Table Talk Radio, answering the age-old question. If a radio show is broadcasting and no one listens, does it still make a sound? Hey, daily devotions for your family. Around the Word is found at whatdoesthismean.org. Greetings and welcome back to Table Talk Radio. We are on the line with Pastor Warren Graff of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're talking about this story from Bernie Sanders about uh, wanting to provide a free college education. And Pastor Graff, before the break, you were talking about how uh, this sort of levels uh, the vocation to say um, that uh, uh, that we w- w- that that all vocations must have a higher education. And um, and there's no kind of need for certain vocations that would not require uh, such an education. Uh, what's behind that? Do you think uh, Bernie Sanders is doing this intentionally, or, or what stands behind that motivation? I, I think it would be a fair step to say that because Bernie Sanders introduces himself as a socialist, then I don't think it's wrong for us to say that we can make a certain assumption of what lies behind it because of him saying he's a socialist. And, and Karl Marx... Um, who, who was a socialist. We think of him as a communist because that's international socialism, but that's the socialist or the collectivist way of, of thinking. Thinks of the human as being a blank slate, even using some of the language for that that, that uh, Plato would have used. And so what we have then is, you know, if, if we have this little, say, third-grade boy in front of us or a fourth-grade girl in front of us, instead of looking at them and saying, what are the gifts particular to this one that the Lord gave? Maybe gifts of music, maybe gifts of um, a sense of humor, maybe gifts of a, a mind for math, or maybe none of that. Maybe a gift for for being compassionate. What, a face for radio. That, uh, uh, well, yeah, a gift for radio. Although you'd have to ask what Lord would give that gift. <laughs> but um, but but no, these are all good gifts. But instead of looking at this young man or this young woman for what is particular to them as a gift from the Lord, we instead look at them as blank slates. And in that way, then, they, we don't know them as they belong to their family. 
We know them as they belong to the collective. And so for the collective to decide that we want everyone to have a college education, in, the, in that way of, in that socialist way of thinking, actually makes sense. Now, how Bernie Sanders gets there, I'm not sure how, how straight he thinks all that through. But I think it is clear that he's, he, he's looking at it in a collectivist way, as he would say, a socialist way, where we're not taking each person according to their particularities. How would how would you respond to someone who's who's reading Acts chapter two and says that boy everyone's selling all they have and and sharing in common with one another? Um, isn't that in essence the same thing? It's the same thing except the opposite, um, because the whole point of collectivism or socialism is that it's done by coercive power. It's done by coercion, uh, so that when Bernie Sanders is talking about free college education, one thing we can know is he's not going to be calling me on the phone and asking me if I would like to donate, say, $500 a year to the college education fund. Rather, he's going to be including it on my tax bill. Now, the, the point in Acts is that they freely gave. So we can, we can argue about whether or not that worked out well in Acts. I've, I've, heard, I've heard an argument that that was actually an example of how it doesn't work out well. I don't know that that's the point of Acts, though, to, to make that argument. But we can say that it was not given to us as a mandate for the church to do this. It was given as a description of these Christians did that. But, but that would be the same as if you and I go and bind ourselves together in some purpose or cause. We bind ourselves together in the cause to... Um, Whatever to fight cancer, and so you and I both pledge that we're going to give fifty dollars a month to um, to to a research project to fight cancer. Well, that's fine. That's two people who are using their private wealth that is given by the Lord to do something that seems to them to serve their neighbor. That's much different than someone using coercive power to tell me I need to give them fifty dollars a month, but they'll use it on something that they think is really good. Those are two opposite ways of looking at things. Now, what when we look at the, a question like this, how, I mean, um, can you draw it out with the Ten Commandments? So, what t- what commandments are in place here, and what of God's ordering of the world is being uh, either shown forth or assaulted in this in a case like this? Well, the first commandment that I think we would say is being assaulted would be, and this would be referencing what Luther writes in the Large Catechism. It's Commandment Four. Um, it's the fourth commandment, where when, when we're honoring our father and our mother, Luther writes in the large catechism, he's, he writes this, and this commandment belongs a further statement about all kinds of obedience to persons in authority who have to command and govern. For all authority, Luther writes, flows and is born from the authority of parents. And then it goes on where a father is unable alone to educate his rebellious and irritable child. He uses a schoolmaster to teach the child. But the point being that the commandment that sets all this in order is the commandment setting in order the family. Honor your father and your mother. So here we have a husband and wife. They've had children, and all authority flows from that. So the, the authority of the police officer doesn't stand out there on its own. He has authority because families need to be protected, and his authority flows from them. 
So when a police officer, let's say, sees a child in trouble and goes and and, uh, protects the child, he's not doing it as some sort of abstract police officer. He's doing it as a servant to the father and the mother who don't happen to be there at the time. Or when, for that matter, a history teacher is teaching history, she's not doing it on her own as just a history teacher out there. She's doing it as a servant to the parents of those children in front of her. Well, in this way, then, the college education, if it's the government that is now saying that everyone has a free education and it is taken care of by the government, we now know who will be employing, whether directly or indirectly, but who will be employing all those professors and teachers. They, they may employ them directly in a federal or a state university setup, but they're certainly employing them at least indirectly because they're paying the bill and they get to say what can and can't be taught. And we already see some of this happening where speech codes are put out on campuses telling professors things that they're not allowed to to teach or, or say. So what has been flipped over here is that the person who is looking, this young man or young woman who's who, let's say, is looking at going to college or looking at going to vocational school, or maybe looking at neither, is looking at maybe joining the Army or maybe going and being an apprentice for a house painter. This young person is coming from the family, not from the collective government. And so for the government to be taking this in hand is something outside of what they have been instituted to do. What we know that the government has been instituted to do is, as uh, Peter says, to bear the sword, to bring punishment to those who do, uh, who do evil and to bring praise to those who do well. So the government is to protect families, to protect good order, but that doesn't mean that the government is given the authority to go and decide what uh, children can be taught. So if, if there's an inversion, I think the first place it happens is right there. To whom does this education belong? To the family or to to the governing authorities? Do you know, as socialism was kind of taken form in its in its modern sense, or whatever kind of democratic socialism that Bernie Sanders is kind of pledged to, that um, that there's a discussion of this? Will they will they talk about the order of the family versus the order of the government, or is it just something for us to understand who understand how God has ordered the world that it's being attacked uh, kind of blindly? Um, well, I, I, I don't hear it. I haven't seen it in any of their speeches where they say that we need to make sure that the government is held up over over the um, the family. They won't come out and say that. Nevertheless, Karl Marx said exactly that. Um, let me a, a statement from Karl Marx here is um, the bourgeois claptrap about family and education, about the ha- hallowed correlation of parent and child, becomes all the more disgusting the more by the action of modern industry and then et cetera, et cetera. So when we, you and I can talk about family and education, that's, that's his word that he says is the claptrap, the nonsense, according to him, and the hallowed correlation between parent and child. Now, you and I would take that, I think, as an assumed thing, that there's, as he says, a hallowed correlation between parent and child, but, but we don't touch the binding together of a man and a woman, in other words, marriage, where what God has joined together, we don't separate. 
We also, though, don't separate what comes forth from the man and the woman, the children, the family. And yet, Karl Marx makes, uh, makes fun of this by calling it the hallowed correlation of parent and child that is bourgeois claptrap. So he is saying, Karl Marx is making the argument that the children then, and for that matter, every person belongs not to the family, but to the, the interests of society or to the collective. And, and it's very explicit. Does, do you think that this comes about, the socialism in our day comes about because of the failure of the family? And by that, I don't mean the failure of the institution, but the uh, failure of the beings to, uh, to have the institution of marriage. No, I, yeah, I've, I've heard that, and I've heard it in the form that maybe, maybe our, our country wouldn't be in such trouble with marriage if the church had done a better job of, of uh, promoting healthier marriages, which, you know, that's one of those things that sounds right when you first hear it. And there may be some truth to it that we should promote healthy marriages, etc. <laughs> but um, just because someone goes and kills someone, for instance, doesn't mean that someone can can then react and say, oh, well, since there's a murder has happened, therefore we can now depreciate human life at every point. Well, just because there have been divorces doesn't mean that we can now depreciate marriage. If anything, it would mean that a healthy society would would value marriage all the more. So to make the argument that because even in the church there's been divorces, therefore um, our society now devalues marriage, is a non sequitur. It does, if anything, it would the relationship would be the other way. The reason that the reason that marriage is under pressure, it would seem to me, is that we have not carefully taught marriage as what it is. We have let marriage be taught as being a relationship between a man and a woman. And that comes from language in the church of, of relationship of, of the church to Christ. You must have a relationship with Jesus. And we know that the language that we use to describe us with our Lord is the language that we will use to describe a marriage, because Paul does exactly that in Ephesians 5. When he's talking about Christ in the church, and he talks about a man and a woman married, and he says, but I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about Christ in the church. So when we have a wrong language for our Lord Jesus, I must have a relationship with him. That will lead to a wrong language for marriage. What, what would be the remedy for that would be to have a right language for our Lord Jesus, which is not that we have a relationship with him, but that we are united to him. That's Paul's language of Romans 6. We are in oneness with him and in oneness with his cross and his resurrection. Being in oneness with Christ lets us now put marriage forth as being in oneness, a man in oneness with a woman. The point to all that is, you might be able to have two men relative to each other and say that now they're really close to each other because they really like each other, and they even say they're in love with each other. Therefore, it's marriage. So if it's built on the word relationship, you end up with who knows what. Whatever can be in relation to something else can be in marriage. But to have a oneness, you have to have a fitting up of a man and a woman. And that includes, as our Lord says, the two become one flesh. So that includes a fitting up in oneness at the point of the flesh. In other words, the bodily union, which means it needs to be a man and a woman because that's the way they fit up toward bringing forth a new child. 
That's probably going to be all the time that we have. Uh, Pastor Graf, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Table Talk Radio. Thank you. It's, it's been great. And thank you for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Where the points are like all the good campaign advice that Bernie Sanders will get when he calls up the Pope. Thanks for listening to this edition of Table Talk Radio. Table Talk Radio is not for everyone. Please consult your pastor before listening to Table Talk Radio. Side effects may include nausea, vomiting, headache, heartburn, hair loss, hallucinations, and aversion to incomplete sentences with aquatic imagery, psychosis, coma, death, halitosis, lung cancer, brain tumors, sleep pain, internal bleeding, internal combustion, a sudden craving to smell your backseat, claustrophobia, an uncontrollable urge to fight the capitalists on Twitter, and falling off your treadmill. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org.